All right, we are in Galatians 4, 21 through, uh, 21 through 5, 1. And I'm going to ask you, once you've located the text, would you stand if you're able to, and we'll read it together. Galatians 4. We're starting in verse 21, and it is standing firm in freedom. Galatians 4, 21. Tell me, you who want to be under the law, or under law, do you not listen to the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by the bondwoman and one by the free woman. But the son by the bondwoman was born according to the flesh, the son by the free woman through the promise. This is allegorically speaking 24. For these women are two covenants, one proceeding from Mount Sinai, bearing children who are to be slaves. She is Hagar. Now this Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia and corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem 26 above is free. She is our mother, for it is written, Rejoice, barren woman who does not bear. Break forth and shout, you who are not in labor. For more numerous are the children of the desolate than of the one who has a husband. And you, brethren, like Isaac, are children of promise. But as at that time he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the Spirit, so it is now also. But what does the Scripture say? Cast out the bondwoman and her son, for the son of the bondwoman shall not be an heir with the son of the free woman. So then, brethren, we are not children of a bondwoman, but of the free woman. And let's move into chapter 5, because I think it is a transitional verse, but it kind of caps the whole thing. It says, it was for freedom that Christ set us free. Therefore, keep standing firm and do not be subject again to a yoke of slavery. You may be seated. Let's pray. Father, thank you for uh, each precious person that's walked into this place. This is a very technical text, as we can tell just by reading it. But it is very significant because it's another way that Paul begins to show us what we need to see about the truth of the gospel and about not getting ourselves stuck in slavery again. And this was the temptation of the Galatian church. And there's nothing new under the sun. It is our temptation to go back to things that enslave us rather than walking in freedom. And there's many ways, Father, we understand many ways that we can get ourselves entangled in sin. And even in religious practices that don't really make us free but enslave us. And we need wisdom on how to navigate uh, this particular issue in our lives because freedom is such a precious gift. And we are told here that it was for freedom that Christ set us free. You want us to be a free people. You don't want us to be under any kind of yoke, any kind of burden of slavery. You bore that burden at the cross to make us a free people. You took the weight of our sin. You nailed it to the cross. And we are free. There's now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And we are so grateful that you remove the weights from us in the gospel. And I pray for wisdom. As Elihu said to Job in Job 34, 32, teach us what we do not see, Father. 
Never was a prayer more true than this particular text where we need some technical understanding. So help us to put our thinking caps on this morning and to understand what you're saying to us. Lead us by your Holy Spirit. Give us the application we need that we can walk out who we are. I pray that in Jesus' name. And if you agree, say amen. It was for freedom that Christ set us free. Freedom is uh, a concept in the gospel that we need to understand. And, and it would seem that it would be easy to define freedom, but we need to define freedom from a biblical perspective. What does God mean by freedom? Somebody might say to be free is to do what you want, whenever you want, with whomever you want. And that's one opinion of freedom. I was reading a commentary this week, and there was a gentleman who said that he had a father who has since passed away. This is a, a scholar I was reading, and he said his dad began to smoke at a very young age. And he, and he wanted to smoke, he felt free to smoke, and he began to take a smoking habit on. That smoking habit became now three packs a day. So dad smoked and smoked and smoked and smoked, and he was one of those guys that, you know, if you smoke three packs a day, if this resonates with you, I'm not trying to beat you up, but you gotta, you got to squeeze in a cigarette, you know, just about every other moment of your day. So dad got sick, he got emphysema, he ended up getting lung cancer, and even as he was going through treatments for lung cancer, he was still smoking. He attempted to kick the habit, he went to a week-long program to try to overcome the smoking, he couldn't do it, and it ended up killing him. So we can say, well, you know, we're free to do what we want. We could talk about a lot of different things that we can, you know, we can put into our bodies or we can put before our eyes and we can say, I'm free. I'm an American. I can do what I want. Well, maybe. But freedom from a biblical perspective is to do what you ought, not to do what you want. It's to do what you ought. Or, to put it another way, freedom, from God's perspective, is to be who you were always meant to be. It's not freedom, you know, freedom is not license in the Bible. And so, we celebrate grace every day, but grace is not a license to sin. Grace is the ability not to sin. Amen? It's the ability to walk the way I ought to walk, to live the way I ought to live, to say, I want my name to be a good name. I want to live out the values of heaven as best as possible. If there was ever a free man on the earth, it was Jesus. Jesus was never impinged or pressured by the opinions of others, whether it was political, religious, or social. He did some things outside the norm, but he always did those things that pleased his father. That's freedom. Freedom is I don't let other people dictate to me unbiblical values, even if religious people will look down their nose at me thinking I've done the wrong thing. If it's heaven's values, I'm free. This is what Jesus modeled. This is what it means to be free. And this is the text that we're looking at this morning. And Paul says, tell me, with a tone of sarcasm and irony, tell me, you who want to be under law, do you not listen to the law? Now, if we were to walk out the 613 commandments of the law and the sub-commandments of the law, a lot of them have to do with the sacrificial system. 
In fact, when you read through the first five books of Moses called the Pentateuch or the five volumes, what you find is a whole lot of stuff about sacrifice. Uh, you can't keep that, by the way, because to my knowledge, there's no temple or sacrificial system happening today. Now, we have made a distinction between the ceremonial law and the moral law, and we even brought out the idea of the pedagogue or the pedagogical use of the law, which is that the law is our tutor to bring us to Christ. So there's different uses of the law, no doubt. And we would argue as believers that the moral law, of course, is still in place. Because the moral law is captured in loving God with all, everything I am and loving my neighbor as myself. So there is an aspect of the law that we are still to keep. But we are not to be under the burden of the law to think that by fulfilling the law, it can save us. You cannot be saved by the law. We've studied it as we've gone through Galatians. If there was a law that could impart life, it would have been given. But no law can impart life because the law brings the light of sin. And so if I put myself back under the law, what I do is enslave myself to my own sin. The problem is not the law. The law is holy and good. The problem is right here. <laughs> The guy I look in the, at the, in the mirror every day. But the good news is that even with the light of the law exposing who I am in the inner man when I fail to do the right thing, etc., things that we've talked about, um, even though it exposes me, it drives me to the foot of the cross. I had a moment uh, some three decades ago now where I saw my sin for what it was. I saw that I was in desperate trouble. <laughs> I saw that my religious... Uh, activity and all the things that I had tried to do was not going to save me. And then I saw a Savior on a cross paying my penalty, bearing my burden, living the perfect life that I could never live. And then I, I realized how good, how good news the good news is. Amen? It, it is really good news. Uh, some of you may be here and maybe you've experienced a prison cell before. Uh, if you've ever lost your freedom, you know how important freedom is. And if there was ever a people that could talk to us about losses of freedom, it's the Jewish people. Because they were enslaved in Egypt for some 400 years. They went into a Babylonian captivity for 70 years. At the time that Paul wrote, they were under Roman occupation. And just less than 100 years ago, we had the Holocaust, where many Jewish people ended up in egregious, unspeakable death camps. And if you've ever seen footage of that, it is hard to take. I've, I've been to the uh, Holocaust Museum twice uh, in Israel. And both times I was there, I was stunned by the pictures and the artifacts and... Uh, how desperately evil man can be toward his fellow man. The loss of freedom, the loss of being able to do just the basic things. And there's a spiritual imprisonment that Paul's been talking about, and it's possible to put yourself back under a yoke. Christ sets us free, but if you have 
received the gospel of Jesus Christ and then you had somebody begun, begin to whisper in your ear that the gospel's not enough or you got to do these 10 things to really make sure you're saved. That's what Paul is addressing. He's saying don't let anybody dupe you into thinking that human performance can save you. It can't. Christ saves you. Now just to be clear, where, where we are headed in Galatians is practical sections. If you're a Christian, you should be bearing fruit. If you're a Christian, there's going to be evidence that you are born from above. There's no doubt about it. But you got to have the root right before you can understand the fruit. The root is grace. The fruit is what you do as a result of who you are. And we'll get into that as we get into the fruits of the Spirit and other things as we move on in Galatians. I want to take you to John chapter 8. John chapter 8, we'll look at a familiar passage where Jesus, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, is interacting with some folks that have professed faith in him or believed in him. John 8, we're going to pick it up at verse 30. John 8, verse 30. Let's see what Jesus said about freedom. John 8, 30. As he spoke these things, many came to believe in him. Jesus, therefore, was saying to those Jews who had believed in him, John 8, 31, if you abide in my word, that word abide means stay close, remain, then you are truly disciples of mine, and you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. They answered him, we are Abraham's offspring and have never yet been enslaved to anyone. That's not true. How is it that you say you shall become free? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is the slave of sin. And the slave does not remain in the house forever. The son does remain forever. If therefore the son shall make you free, let me hear it, brethren, you shall be what? Free indeed. I know that you are Abraham's offspring, Jesus says, yet you seek to kill me, because my word has no place in you. I speak the things which I have seen uh, with my father, therefore you also do the things which you have heard from your father. Uh-oh. They answered and said to him, Abraham's our father. Now Abraham's been at the heart of the uh, letter to the Galatians as well as the Roman letter. Abraham's our father. Jesus said to them, if you are Abraham's children, do the deeds of Abraham. But as it is, you are seeking to kill me. A man who has told you the truth, which I heard from God, this Abraham did not do. You are doing the deeds of your father. They said to him, We were not born of fornication. We have one father, even God. Jesus said to them, If God were your father, you would love me. For I proceeded forth and have come from God. For I have not come on my own initiative, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I am saying? It's because you cannot hear my word. And then we get into something that is really stunning. You are of your father, the devil. You want to do the desires of your father. He was a murderer from the beginning. Noted Bible students. They want to kill Jesus. And Jesus says, your father was a murderer from the beginning and you're plotting my murder. He does not stand in the truth because there's no truth in him. Whenever he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own what? His nature. It's who he is. He's a liar and the father of lies. Even implicit in this famous text is the idea that you've got to have a new nature. You've got to be born again. That's when the truth and the love and the fruits of God will come out of your life. 
He's a liar. He's the father of lies. But because I speak the truth, you do not believe me. It's the truth that sets people free. Back to Galatians chapter 4. It's the truth that will set us free. But there were people chained to false theology in Paul's day. We've identified them as the Judaizers, the false teachers in Galatia. Some have called them the influencers. And they're trying to tell people in Galatia, after they've received the gospel and been baptized in the name of Jesus Christ, that there is more to it, and you're really not saved unless you get circumcised. You're really not saved unless you have a kosher diet. You're really not saved unless you honor the festivals, and on and on it goes. And they were preaching a false gospel. And Paul says, listen, don't you know what the law says? Why would you put yourself there? Now he's going to give us what's called an allegorical uh, approach to an Old Testament text. This is technical. So if you came today and you didn't have your coffee, uh, go out and get another cup of coffee. Come back in. No. <clears throat> You're going to need to think with me a little bit here. Some people believe what Paul is about to do is known as a midrash. M-I-D with rash at the end. Like a commentary from a rabbi taking a meaning of a text that is not clearly the historical setting or context on the surface, if you will, and bringing out another meaning of the text, another application of the text. Some people say what Paul is doing is both allegorical and typological. I'm sorry for all the big words, but this is one of those texts. And so um, he's going to reach into an ancient text, and he says, for it is written, notice 22, Galatians 4, Abraham had two sons, one by the bondwoman and one by the free woman. Now, no specific verse is given in verse 22. Paul is giving a general overview. Now, the two sons born to Abraham were Ishmael and Isaac, okay? And so this is the story, and the, and the two sons came from two different women. And we'll talk about how that came about. But this is the story, and Paul is going to break into an allegory from the law. Remember that the law was considered by many the first five books. So Paul says, if you want to be under the law, let me give you an example of a story in the law. So the law takes on a wider uh, definition here. It's not just the Ten Commandments or the ceremonial law. Here it's the first five books. So a story, if you will, from the law. Abraham had two different types of sons. You could say the most important thing to grab here is which son had a spiritual line to Abraham? Because that is the issue in Galatians. It's who, who are the true children of Abraham? Who has a spiritual line to Abraham? Not just a lineage. Remember John the Baptist said to the Pharisees who had come for baptism? He said, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Talk about political correctness, right? Coming, it says they were coming for baptism. And, and John says, you brood of vipers! Welcome to our church. Good to have you this morning. <laughs> who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? The, ox, the axe is already at the root. <laughs> Whoa, baby, John, did you eat a little too much honey this morning? I don't know, right? He says, look, 
Don't say that because you're the children of Abraham that you're good, paraphrasing. For God can make children of Abraham from these rocks if he wants to. <laughs> Woo, baby. <laughs> Don't think just because you're an American you're a Christian. But my granddaddy was a minister. Great. Are you born again? It's not just about your lineage. It's not about your family history. It's not how you check a box on a medical form. Are you born from above? Nicodemus comes to Jesus by night and he says, Teacher, we know you're from God for no one can do the works that you do unless God is with him. Jesus doesn't even acknowledge what he says. I tell you the truth. You, Nicodemus, the teacher of Israel, must be born again. Nicodemus, loose paraphrase, says, Say what? Am I supposed to enter back into my mama's womb? I'm an old guy. What are you talking about? Jesus says, no. He says, look, you must be born of water and the Spirit. That which is born of flesh is flesh. That which is born of the Spirit is spirit. You see, what you need, Nicodemus, is a spiritual birth. I know you're the teacher of Israel, but you must be born again. In Jewish theology, they thought Gentiles had to be born again. Only Gentiles. Only Gentiles needed to go through a mikvah, which was an ancient kind of baptism. And Jesus says, no. He turns that whole idea on its head. He says, no, you must be born again, Nicodemus. You need the new birth as just as much as anybody else. There's no distinction by pedigree or uh, ethnicity or lineage. The most important thing is a spiritual line to Abraham. Two different mothers, two different types of births. Very, very important, illustrated in the story, verse 23, but the son by the bondwoman, that's Hagar, she's not named, but it's Hagar, was born according to the flesh. Now we, we learned that Hagar was an Egyptian who became the maidservant of Sarai, who became Sarah. And Abram it went down to Egypt in a time of famine. And when you're in Egypt, sometimes things happen in Egypt that stick with you, so to speak. Hagar was one of those results. She was the maidservant to Sarai. And here's the basic story. Basically, uh, in Genesis 15, God says to Abram, he takes him outside, he shows him the stars, and he says, your, your descendants are going to be like the stars of the sky. But Abram says, I don't have a kid. How can this promise be fulfilled? What I have is Eleazar of Damascus. He's like the head servant of my house. And he's going to inherit everything. That's what happened in that culture. Because I, I don't have a child. I don't have a boy. And God assured him, you're going to have children like the stars of the sky or the sand on the seashore. And Abraham believed the Lord he believed the promise, and that belief was what? Reckoned to him as righteousness. God said, you took me at my word, even though you haven't realized that promise yet, and I know your biological clock is ticking. <laughs> You're getting older. Your wife is getting older. Trust me. And Abraham believed. It says in Romans 4, 18 and 19, in hope against hope, he believed in order that he might become a father of many nations according to that which had been spoken. So shall your descendants be, Romans 4.19. Without becoming weak in faith, he contemplated his own body, 
now as good as dead, since he was about 100 years old, and the deadness of Sarah's womb. He contemplated his own body. <laughs> okay, <laughs> I know you made a promise, Lord, but it's not looking too good. <laughs> I bought some super vitamins. I, I'm trying to work out. But I'm old. Can God make through new things through that which looks impossible? Can he bring life from barrenness? Can he bring life from that which appears to be dead? And the lesson, spiritually speaking, is that's why you're all sitting here, if you're a believer, is that he brought life from that which was dead and barren. Amen? That's the spiritual reality. Hebrews 11 honors Sarah. By faith, even Sarah herself received the ability to conceive even beyond the proper time of life since she considered him faithful who had promised. Therefore, Hebrews 11, 11 and 12, also there was born of one man and him as good as dead at that, uh, as many descendants as the stars of the heaven in number and innumerable as the sand which is by the seashore. Hebrews 11, 11 and 12. I want to take you back so you can just get a peek of um, a few of these highlights in Genesis 17. Let's go there, Genesis 17. So, what ends up happening is they become impatient. Uh, God makes a promise, but sometimes he makes a promise, and then he says, okay, you're going to wait until that promise is realized. And it's hard for us to wait. So, they attempted to help God out, and uh, things, you know, the promise was given, but... Things weren't happening, and so all of a sudden Sarah comes to Abram or Abraham and says, why don't you go into Hagar, my maidservant? Why don't you be with her? And in the ancient world, if, if your wife was barren, this was an acceptable practice. You could take another wife, and that was the main reason, by the way, that some of these uh, early patriarchs took another wife was to have offspring. So... Hagar becomes the wife of Abraham. He's with her, and a child is conceived. But as soon as Hagar knew she was pregnant, the implication of the text is that she started strutting around with her belly kind of pushing out. Mm-hmm. And she despised Sarah. She would walk by her and go, Yep, I'm having a baby. What about you? That's my own interpretation of what she did. <laughs> and so things got tense in the tent. You know what I'm saying? They, they made a daytime television special. Tension in the tent. You know, these two ladies. And Ishmael, interestingly enough, his name comes from Shema, which is the Hebrew word to hear, and El, E-L, which is the name of God. God hears. So Ishmael comes on the scene, Genesis 17, 15, God said to Abraham, as for Sarai, your wife, she is Sarai, then becomes Sarah, you shall not, Genesis 17, 15, not call her name Sarai, princess, but Sarah, noble woman, shall be her name. I will bless her, 17, 16, indeed I will give you a son by her, then I will bless her, and she shall be a mother of nations. 
kings of people shall come from her. Abraham fell on his face, and what did he do? He laughed. And he said in his heart, Will a child be born to a man 100 years old? Will Sarah, who's 90 years old, bear a child? This is funny. <laughs> now, it was maybe the laughter of surprise, not really unbelief. And Abraham said to God, Oh, that Ishmael, Ishmael's already here now, might live before you, before thee. Lord, are you sure? <laughs> so, God said, No, but Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac. Isaac means laughter, ironically enough. And I will establish my covenant with him for an everlasting covenant for his descendants after him. Now, over to Genesis 18, verse 10. Genesis 18, 10. He said, I will surely return to you this time next year, and behold, Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. And Sarah was listening at the tent door, which was behind him. Now Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in age. Sarah was past childbearing. And Sarah laughed to herself, saying, After I become old, shall I have pleasure, my Lord being old also? And the Lord said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh, saying, Shall I indeed bear a child when I am so old? Is anything too difficult for the Lord? At the appointed time, I will return to you at this time next year, and Sarah shall have a son. Sarah denied it, however, saying, I did not laugh, for she was afraid. And he said, No, but you did laugh. Whoops. God knows everything. Now, what's... The most important part here is that God brings life from barrenness. The son of promise was coming. Basically what happened was this couple, probably well-meaning, tried to help God out with the promise. Back to Galatians. You ever do that before? God makes a promise to you and you think you got to help him out? Yeah. We got to get her done. So let's... Uh, Let's do this, let's do that. We'll help God out because, you know, he's, you hear people say stuff like this, God's busy. You know, he's, he's running the universe. Does he really care about this one? Does he really care about my little needs or promises that he's made to me about me or my family or my future? Yes, he does care about you. So we get ahead of God sometimes and this is one of the tough parts of the Christian life is knowing what should I do, what's my part, what's God's part. That can be difficult. But God said, no, this son's coming from your body. Now this 424 in Galatians is allegorically speaking. For these women, Hagar and Sarah, are two covenants. One proceeding from Mount Sinai. Now that seems evident. We know that covenant is the law given to Moses. Bearing children who are to be slaves, she, the first of the two covenants, is Hagar, connected to Mount Sinai. Now, I told you this is going to get technical because it's an allegory or a midrash or there's some typology here, but here's the basic idea. Hagar is representative of something. And she was a slave in Egypt and she bore a son. The son was not the heir, so he was born essentially into slavery because of his fleshly birth. It was human effort that produced Ishmael. And so because of that, he was born into slavery. That was his uh, future by his birth, if you will. 
These two women, our two covenants, Mount Sinai reminds us of the place, the laws given, the mountain filled with fire, and so forth. They represent two covenants. Well, what, then what is the other covenant representative? Most evangelical scholars would argue that the other covenant is the new covenant. That would make sense. A contrast between the old and new covenant from Sinai to the cross, if you will. However, there is a case to be made that the, uh, the covenant in view is actually the Abrahamic covenant. But I will tell you this, even if the covenant in view is the Abrahamic covenant, the Abrahamic covenant is still fulfilled by the gospel of the new covenant. Everybody with me? Say no. No, no, we're not. We should have taken you up on that coffee. Go back to Galatians 3.16, this will help. Now the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed, Galatians 3.16. He does not say into seeds is referring to many, but rather to one, to your seed, that is Christ. What I'm saying is this. The law, which came 430 years later after the covenant with Abraham, does not invalidate a covenant previously ratified by God so as to nullify the promise. For if the inheritance is based on law, it is no longer based on a promise, but God has granted it to Abraham by means of a promise. Here's the bottom line. God made an unconditional covenant with Abraham in Genesis 15 that represents the idea that when one believes in the Lord, they are made righteous by faith, by trusting God. That's the Abrahamic covenant. 430 years later, the law is given at Sinai to Moses. That law does not invalidate the covenant given to Abraham. That right standing with God comes by trusting in God. Everybody with me? So even though the law came 430 years later, it doesn't invalidate the Abrahamic covenant. That's Paul's point. That's probably the two covenants in view. Although, you could say that the Abrahamic covenant is ultimately fulfilled as each person trusts Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. The moment that you trust him, before you go, go into the waters of baptism, the moment that you believe, you repent of your sin and you believe in Jesus, what happens? You're born again of the Holy Spirit. It's a promise by faith, through grace. You grab hold of it by faith. The grace has already been extended to you by the death and resurrection of Jesus. It's a good time for a phone call, right? <laughs> so, the second covenant, uh, let me read the NIV, this may help. Now, this Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. You might want to draw some arrows if you have a, a physical Bible on your lap. Hagar to Mount Sinai in Arabia corresponds to the present Jerusalem. The NIV says Hagar stands for Mount Sinai in Arabia. That corresponds, so you kind of walk it out from Hagar to Sinai to present Jerusalem. They're all clumped together. Draw your arrows. For she is in slavery with her children. Here's the bottom line. Paul says, I walk around Jerusalem as Jesus did, and I see a bunch of religious people who are slaves. Slaves to what? To the law. Slaves to the extra traditions that the rabbis have placed on the people's backs so they can barely move on a Sabbath day. And even in modern Jerusalem, they have Sabbath elevators and 
different things for the Sabbath because you can only walk a certain distance and you're not supposed to press a button and all of this stuff. And people get so caught up in the minutia trying to be pleasing to God that they lose how they're saved in the first place. Christ made you to be free. Amen? Jesus, in John 5 and John 9, heals a couple different people on the Sabbath day. A man who had been crippled, I think 38 years, a man who was born blind. The religious leadership can't rejoice in the healing. Rather, they get caught up that he did it on the Sabbath day. This man can't be from God. Yes, he opened a person's eyes that was blind from birth. Congenital blindness. And then they interview the formerly blind man. Who healed you? How did it happen? Well, the man named Jesus, he, he made clay with his spittle. He put it on my eyes. I went and washed in the pool of Siloam and came back seeing. Then they call the parents. Is this your son? Was he born blind? Yes, it's our son. And he was born blind. How was he healed? I don't know. He's of age. Ask him. And they were afraid because anybody who openly confessed Jesus would be what? Booted out of the synagogue. All right, so now they call the blind, formerly blind man back and they say, hey, uh, tell us again what happened. <laughs> he says, why do you want to hear it again? I already told you what happened. <laughs> he says, do you want to also become one of his disciples? <laughs> you can see the religious leader, rats and rats and double rats. And then the formerly blind man begins to teach the religious leaders. It's never been heard of that anybody like, how could, he, how could he not be from God, paraphrasing, since he opened my eyes? Here's what I can tell you. Once I was blind, but now I see. But he did it on the Sabbath day. The Sabbath day. He did it on the Sabbath. He's the fulfillment of the Sabbath. They strained at a gnat and swallowed a camel. But, 26, the Jerusalem, here's the other covenant, above, this one's connected to Sarah and Isaac, is free. She is our mother. Jerusalem above contrasted with the Jerusalem of Paul's day. Jerusalem means city of peace. And when you belong to the, if you're a citizen of the heavenly kingdom, you're free. She is our mother. The second free woman, Sarah, births free children of promise. Remember the definition I gave you of freedom. It's to be what you ought to be. It's to be what God made you to be. Now Paul will quote another text. For it is written, Rejoice, barren woman. Many rabbis saw this as Sarah, or at least Sarah was uh, typified in this. Who does not bear, break forth and shout, you who are not in labor, for more are the children of the desolate than of the one who has a husband. Now, in quoting Isaiah 54, 1, Paul continues, it is written. He quotes the verse from Isaiah 54, 1. And he's addressing the captives that would end up in Babylonian captivity. Basically, he's saying this. Even though you guys went into captivity and your children were impacted, and maybe you lost family members and children, and you feel like you're barren as a nation. You're going to have, and connected now back to Sarah and Abraham, more children than you could ever imagine. Now you take it from the earth, 
to the new Jerusalem or the future Jerusalem that will come down on the earth. And you imagine now people from every tribe, tongue, nation, and people. And imagine Abraham and Sarah maybe sitting at a banquet table as people from every tribe, every tongue, every nation pour into the kingdom of God. And Abraham says, I do have as many kids as the sand of the seashore. Look at this. Where'd they all come from? Well, they're pouring in because they have a direct line spiritually back to you, Abraham. Because we are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise, simply when we place trust in Jesus, we get a seat at the table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Praise God. There's a seat for you if you'll trust in Jesus. And so also you, brethren, like Isaac, applied now directly to the church in Galatia and Corona, you are children of promise. Don't let anybody rob you of that promise. But as at that time, he who was born according to the flesh, 29, persecuted him who was born according to the Spirit. So it is now also. Now Paul pushes the analogy one step further to tell the Galatian believers tempted to get circumcision and come under the law in that respect. He says, look, just like it happened in the days with uh, Ishmael and Isaac, so it happens now. Here's the story. Later homework is Genesis 21, 8 through 13. So the child Isaac grew and he was weaned. He's probably about three years old. Abraham made a great feast on the day that Isaac was weaned. Now Sarah saw the son of Hagar, the Egyptian, whom she had born to Abraham, mocking, laughing at Isaac. So Ishmael, he's the older kid now, He's making sport of Isaac. There's some extra-biblical sources that say he shot arrows at Isaac. Isaac was three. And I'm just playing around right past his ear. Some people say that Ishmael was mocking Isaac about circumcision. Isaac was circumcised on the eighth day, but Ishmael was circumcised when he was 13. And there's an extra-biblical reference from the Targumim, Targumim, which records this. Ishmael said to Isaac, I am more beloved than you because I was circumcised at the age of 13. Isaac retorted, I am more beloved than you because I was circumcised at eight days. Ishmael taunted, that makes me more beloved. At the age of 13, I could have protested the procedure, but I did not. I am more beloved than you because I was circumcised at the age of 13, but you were circumcised as a baby and you had no, no choice in the matter. I'm more beloved than you are. I'm more beloved than... <laughs> and there was a party going on and Sarah saw what was happening. And I don't know how bad this got. These are some extra biblical uh, writings, but... Um, one text, as I mentioned, says he was pretending to play and shot arrows at his brother Isaac. Talk about a sibling rivalry. You say, what's the point? The history of Christianity has been this. The religious, please hear this, have been the biggest persecutors of the church. Do you know that our brethren in the last several hundred years or centuries have been burned at the stake to try to get the Bible into the hands of the common person. Not by atheists, 
but by people who claim to belong to the Lord. When Jesus ends up dying on the cross, who are the main perpetrators of getting him there? It's the religious leadership. Who cannot accept him as Messiah, though he does scores of miracles, even raising Lazarus from the dead, but they don't want to lose their position and power, so they crucified the Lord, and Jesus said to Pilate, they who turn me over to you have the greater sin. They knew better. They knew I was the heir. And they said, come, let us destroy him. Wow. Over the centuries, persecution has come mainly from religious people. How sad. How tragic. And here, nothing new under the sun. In fact, Revelation 17, 6 says that the woman who represents false religion was drunk with the blood of the saints. Heavy. So what do we do about it? Someone reading this says, well, what does the scripture say? What should we do now? Cast out the bondwoman and her son, for the son of the bondwoman shall not be an heir with the son of the free woman. When Sarah saw Ishmael harassing her son, she said, drive out the maid and her son, drive out Hagar and Ishmael, and Abraham was grieved. And the Lord said to him, listen to the voice of your wife. I will make him a great nation, don't worry. And most people believe that Ishmael produces the Arabs, which is an interesting thing to think about even in modern society now or in modern life there's still ongoing tension between <laughs> Ishmael and Isaac if you will everybody with me ongoing tension in the Middle East and so forth what do we make of cast out the bondwoman does this mean that the false teachers should be booted out of the church some believe that others would say that the main point Paul is making is that they need to pay attention to the scripture, verse 30, what does the scripture say, and ignore these false teachers. What does this mean? It means that we, brethren, must listen to the teaching of God's word. If you know God's word and you listen to it regularly, you study it regularly, you won't bother with false teachers anymore. Amen? You'll go, what is this? You'll know your Bible so well that you'll go, what is that? There's, there's nothing there. It's just, it's emptiness. It's void. It's nothing. If you start going deep into your Bible and you hear a false teacher start to pontificate false doctrine, you're going to know it instantaneously. That's what Paul is saying. He's teaching them. So then, brethren, we are not children of, the, of a bondwoman, but of the free woman. Look, you're free. Don't come back under a yoke of slavery. Final verse. It was for freedom that Christ set us free. Here's the exhortation. Keep standing firm and do not be subject again to a yoke of slavery. Christ has opened the prison door. Walk in your freedom. A few things from my notes. And Shane, if you can hear my voice, come on out. It is interesting to ponder that our freedom in Christ is something that may well be one of the top things that identify us as belonging to him. Yes, it is love. Yes, it is truth. But freedom will mark God's true people. 
The gospel says sinners are set free from sin, Satan, themselves, the world, all because of the death and resurrection of the life-giving Lord Jesus Christ. We can have freedom ultimately from social pressure, false teaching, going back into sin. We don't have to be a slave anymore. This is what freedom looks like. It's not doing what you want. It's being what you ought. Amen? It's saying, I'm truly free to serve my Father and extend his kingdom. Father, thank you for this section. It is <laughs> a little difficult sledding here, but I appreciate this congregation's heart to dive into the word of God, hear the voice of your spirit, make the applications as uh, you would lead us, Lord. And I do pray that you would help us to hear your voice, to hear what the Spirit says to your church, to walk out our freedom that you purchased with such a high price. If you're here this morning and maybe some of this is new to you or maybe uh, you've been away from church for a long time and maybe you wondered where you stand with God or if you could be forgiven of your sin, you can. Jesus paid it all. He wants to make you free. He wants to lift your burdens. Would you keep your head and heart bowed and just cry out to him? He's the one that can save you. There's no person on, the, on this earth, there's no person in this room that can save you. Jesus saves. Would you cry out to him? If, if you are not sure that you know him, if you're not sure, God forbid, if you were to leave this planet tonight, that you would be saved, make sure. With your head and heart bowed, just something this simple. Jesus, thank you for dying for me. Thank you for purchasing my freedom at the cross and through the resurrection. I place my faith and trust in you. I want to be born from above. I want to experience a spiritual rebirth. I want to know who you are. I don't want to just do religion. I want to know you. Would you save me? I turn from my sin. I'm sorry for it. And I thank you that you died on that cross for me and rose from the dead. And I place my trust in you. Please remove my burdens, my fears, my struggles. I place my trust in you and you alone for my salvation. In Jesus' name. Maybe you're a prodigal and you've, maybe you got caught up in some false teaching and maybe you've lost some of your freedoms. You can come back to The Father just waits. And if you're a saint here this morning, you've been walking with the Lord and you have your ups and downs, I pray that the Lord would encourage your faith, strengthen you in the inner man, and just give you a blessed week as you walk in true freedom. Father, I ask all of this in Jesus' name.